From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Professor Jean Theo Harris joins me to discuss her new book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. The civil rights movement has become a national treasure lauded by every U.S. president from Reagan to Trump as proof of the power of American democracy. But according to my guest, Brooklyn College political science professor Jean Theo Harris, in her new book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History, this is an incomplete narrative. Professor Theo Harris dissects this national myth-making that what is embraced largely as fable, featuring dreamy heroes and accidental heroines, placing the movement in antiquity of solitary confinement, thereby diminishing it in scope. And according to Theo Harris, it is used perniciously today to chastise present-day movements and obscure contemporary injustice. It is an honor to have Professor Theo Harris on the public morality. Professor Jean Theo Harris, welcome to the public morality. Thank you for having me. Now, I realize I'm, this, I'm dating myself here, but there's one of my favorite lines comes from the movie uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And I'm wondering, based on your text, isn't that what we've done in your view to the uh, civil rights movement in general? In a way, yeah. I think... The civil rights movement has moved um, into kind of the center of like American public life, of the way that the United States talks about itself. Um, in surveys with high school students now, when asked to identify the most famous Americans, they overwhelmingly pick King, uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Uh, and then across the political spectrum, um, and I argue beginning with Reagan changing his position on the King holiday. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, presidents uh, and uh, congressional leadership, hold up the civil rights movement, a particular version. What I am talking about in the book is a national fable of the civil rights movement to celebrate America. Um, it's become a kind of cornerstone of the way we talk about American democracy, of who we are. Um, and it's but it's very much used to put the civil rights movement in the past um, and, in a way, as a kind of furthering of American exceptionalism. So almost as if, in the way that this, this history is now rendered, we were destined to have a, a kind of great civil rights movement. Um, and I think that leaves a tremendous amount out, uh, and it really kind of distorts and strips much of what the civil rights movement was about, what it took, how unpopular it was, from the way that we now remember it. Take us through uh, your approach in, to this text, and specifically, you know, you have the introduction that you've, you've delineated the introduction from the main text between the history we get and the histories we need. And talk about that approach for a moment, if you would. So part of my, you know, where the book starts is tracing the ascendancy of this 
fable of how this uh, idea of the civil rights movement kind of comes to the center of American political discourse. Um, and in many ways, I began that story with uh, the 15-year struggle uh, after Martin Luther King is assassinated for a federal holiday. Um, so we want to begin with the fact that Martin Luther King is deeply unpopular when he's assassinated. And he's unpopular, and the civil rights movement is unpopular across the 1960s. Uh, not just in 66, 67, 68, but in the early 60s, right? Poll after poll, most Americans do not support the civil rights movement while it's happening. In 61 and 62, most Americans don't support the March on Washington. And by 66, nearly three-quarters of Americans don't approve of Dr. King and his tactics. So when he's assassinated, uh, he's deeply unpopular. Uh, the New York Times had editorialized against him, uh, particularly in his work around coming out against the war in Vietnam. But obviously there's certainly uh, many people in the United States who, who see in Dr. King right, the best of America and start to push for a holiday. Uh, John Conyers, right after King is assassinated, introduces the first bill for a holiday, and people will fight for 15 years to get a federal holiday honoring Dr. King. Uh, Reagan comes to office in 1980 opposing the holiday. Uh, he's worried we're going to be overrun by holidays, that it's going to cost us too much, and he says he can't rule out the King was not sort of a communist sympathizer. But then we get to 82, 83, and Reagan is now starting to run again. Uh, he's he's facing um, what like an, a sensitivity gap in terms of racial issues. He's been criticized on racial issues, and he and his administration start to see kind of um, supporting the legislation for a King holiday as being politically useful to him and to the administration. And so this longstanding opposition changes uh, to support and in. Um, in 1983, he will sign the legislation supporting and making the third Monday of January a federal holiday to, for Dr. King. Uh, and in the speech he gives that day, we can see what's going to be sort of the, the planks, I would argue, of this national fable that will increasingly take hold. Uh, so he's celebrating Dr. King as an individual. Um, who courageously sort of shone a light on injustice, and once a light is shown on injustice, we fixed it, we end, you know, we took care of it, so now it's in the past. And then the third point Reagan makes, and again, I'm paraphrasing him, is, you know, in many countries, King would never have been able to do what he did, right? So again, this American exceptionalism. And we're going to see these themes uh, in Clinton, when Clinton will give Rosa Parks the Presidential Medal, or when he will go to Little Rock to honor uh, Central High? Yeah, the 40th anniversary of Central High. We will see this in the way that uh, George uh, W. Bush will, uh, there will be, um, when Rosa Parks dies in 2005, uh, Congress and the President will rush to make Rosa Parks the first civilian right, to lie in honor in the Capitol, the first woman. Um, and again, there we see similar kinds of themes. Uh, we had an injustice, it was fixed, it becomes this way to sort of put racism in the past to cover over contemporary injustice, because in my view we can't separate this national honoring of Rosa Parks from what had happened two months earlier with Hurricane Katrina. 
Um, and then we see this with Obama, President Obama as well. Um, so a, a celebration, but largely a putting of the movement in the past, um, and a way to kind of celebrate America and the progress of America, uh, both Obama himself and his administration, but also the ways that many Americans sort of see the Obama presidency as the final capstone and talk about a post-racial or almost post-racial United States. Um, and even our current president, Trump, is not immune to this. Um, our current president uh, will, in the Republican debates, uh, say that the woman who should be on the $20 bill is Rosa Parks. Um, his campaign three weeks before the 2016 election will tweet out a picture of him with Rosa Parks and Muhammad Ali when they're getting an award to make it seem like he's you know, he's a man of the people, of all people. Uh, and when he goes to meet the Pope last spring, he takes first edition writings of Dr. King. So in many ways, what we can see over the past, um, you know, 35 years is the civil rights movement has moved to kind of the center, uh, but in a way that's very much a narrative of progress. Um, that strips, I think, what the movement was, uh, what people were fighting for. Um, it, it, it traps the movement in the South uh, when the civil rights movement occurred all across the United States. Uh, it misses the role of what I'm calling polite racism, um, that people who oppose the movement didn't just burn crosses. They also used, you know, political bureaucracy. They used sociology. There were all sorts of ways that people thwarted the civil rights movement while it was happening. Um, there were many, many leaders. So I have a chapter in the book talking about the leadership of high school students. Um, and the movement was deeply unpopular and, and surveilled. And I think that those aspects, so this idea of the history we get, right, or this national sort of uh, celebrating of kind of mythologized civil rights movement versus the histories we need, a kind of fuller, more sober look at what these movements were, what they took, what they stood for, um, I think gives us a lot for both understanding where we have been and then where we need to go today. Hmm. Now, I don't have limited time with you, so I'm not going to ask you to opine on the interesting use of Dr. King's uh, drum major instinct sermon to, for mm-hmm. a Super Bowl ad. Well, but I, I, what I would say, based on your last answer, what I would ask is... Um, whether you think the, the whitewashing of King, not just in the public discourse, but even among stalwarts of the civil rights movement, to make the civil rights movement... Mo- late 70s when they're pushing for the holiday, right? They're, they begin to universalize King, right? They begin to say, um, right, they're similarly with Rosa Parks and honoring of Rosa Parks. Um, and I think particularly when I think about the, the late 70s and the push for the holiday... I don't think people could have imagined quite that King could then be used in this this other way, that the the celebration of King could be used as a weapon against current movements for racial justice, could be used as a weapon to kind of silence conversations of racial justice in the present. I don't think people could have imagined that we now have uh, a monument for King, right, in D.C., and all of the quotes that surround that monument, none of them speak the word race, racism, segregation, black people, right? I don't think we could have imagined that. So I think, as you're saying, a Faustian bargain, um, 
I think the push to say King, this history is American history, this King is the, you know, kind of ultimate American, um, I, I think how that was then, um, the process by which that gets taken up and redeployed as a way to silence conversations about racism in the present, I think weren't imaginable quite as, the, you know, as they were happening. And I think this is what makes it so slippery. Um, so I think with the Dodge Ram ad, what's, what's interesting to me is sometimes it's easier to see and object to the uses of King to sell things, right? The, the reaction was fast and furious with the Dodge ad um, in terms of people saying this is staggering and inappropriate. Um, I think it's harder with these national celebrations because they do celebrate King and Parks and certainly we want that, right? Certainly we want, we, it's not that we don't want a memorial to Martin Luther King in D.C. It's not that we don't want a statue of Rosa Parks in the, in the Capitol. I think it's that the ways this history is uh, distorted, reshaped, sanitized as a, as a silencer, as a, as a weapon, I think that's what is so... Um, somewhat unimaginable uh, as, you know, in the ways that people will push for the honoring so that it's, it, you know, um, I think we, we couldn't necessarily have seen how this was going to play out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's commonly accepted uh, for those who study King that the last three years of his life was when uh, this sort of radical ethos took over. Although I, I would add that if you spend time in, in Bull Connor's uh, jail in solitary confinement willingly, that's a radical statement. But uh, your text shows a different radical timeline for King. And say a little more Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right. I mean, I think, again, we've gotten this a little bit stuck in this revisionist history of like, oh, Dr. King in the last year, he's taught, you know, this is when he's really a radical. This is when he's unpopular because he's talking about Vietnam, and he's talking about economic justice. And certainly that's true. But I think we really miss both all the things King was saying much earlier, um, the ways he was being dismissed and disparaged about those things. So I've gotten very interested, uh, partly because a lot of my work focuses on the civil rights movement outside the South, on King, King's views um, of racism in the United States, and in particular, his centering of kind of racism as a national, not sectional problem, and his calling out of kind of northern liberals and northern allies who might have been supporting his work in the South in the early 60s, but the minute, uh, and he says this over and over, the minute he starts to talk about sort of problems in their cities, the minute he stands with movements in their cities, uh, he says, only the language is polite, right? That's a quote from him. You know, the, um, the resistance is, is firm and unequivocal. So what King is saying over and over in the early 60s, even before Watts, is this problem of segregation is national. Um, I want a liberalism that's actually liberal in its own backyard, not just about the South. He's standing with movements for school desegregation from L.A. to Boston in the early 60s. He's talking about police brutality. He comes to New York City in 1964 after the Harlem uprising, and he calls for a civilian complaint review board for public accountability around the police. He's basically run out of town. 
um, in 1964 in L.A. Uh, he's in L.A. a lot, um, in part to oppose a proposition on the ballot, Prop 14, uh, which is put there. 1963, there's a big win in California. There's a Fair Housing Act that's passed. And almost immediately, uh, white citizens, realtors, developers get this proposition on the ballot to sort of repeal this, um, basically this fair housing. That was the, origin, that was the origins of the uh, free speech movement at UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Right. And so basically, um, King is there saying, you know, Californians should not have the right to discriminate. And he's called a communist. He's picketed over and over, you know, super ugly signs, you know, thank God for Chief LAPD Chief Parker, King has hate, will travel, all these, you know. So I think we miss, we miss that. We, we look back now and assume, and it's kind of created this, again, a kind of false story where King is beloved until 67. And it's like, no, um, no. I mean, if we look at the March on Washington, uh, they prepare for the, I mean, the, Washington, D.C. prepares for the March on Washington like an inv- invasion, right? Local law enforcement, federal law enforcement are all on the scene. Um, it's hugely monitored. Um, and in fact, the decision to monitor sort of King's, you know, to bug and wiretap King's, you know, house and hotel and offices and everything comes in the wake of both the FBI but also the Kennedy administration's fears about after the March on Washington. Um, that's when, and if you look right at the document, Oh, King, all, that wall-to-wall surveillance of King, it has Robert Kennedy's signature on it. Uh, so, so I think we, we somehow have created this, even among people who, who, who know more, right, this uh, um, false idea that King is beloved then, um, and I think it's much more complicated than that. Um, he's, um, in some sense, he's moving the needle, uh, that makes people uncomfortable. That makes people scared. Uh, and so we see all that coming out even in the early 60s. Um, and he's very clear uh, um, about calling out sort of northern liberals. And I think we've really missed that. Uh, and I think we tend to see King talking about racism as a southern problem when the actual man himself sort of understands it um, as national and and is clear about how much the resistance to desegregation is in the North as well as the South. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with professor and author Jean Theo Harris about her new book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Professor Theo Harris, uh, where does the title of your book originate? Um, So it's from a quote from James Baldwin um, in his Talk to Teachers, which is a beautiful piece. If people haven't read it, you should read it. Um, and Baldwin says, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And I, I took the more beautiful and terrible because I do think sort of grappling with a kind of fuller history of the civil rights movement is sobering, right? It moves us past this kind of easy notion of progress, of good guys and bad guys and happy endings, which is, I think, the way we often now tell the story of the civil rights movement. So it's, it's, it's much more to reckon with. Uh, it's much more terrible and terrifying. Uh, it doesn't show us in a very good light, uh, doesn't show the United States in a particularly good light then and now. At the same time, I think it is more beautiful. 
Um, I think when you look at what people did, I think when you look at the, the variety of leaders, uh, I think when you look at the immensity of the courage um, and what people imagined and the expansiveness of their vision of, you know, desegregation and economic justice and criminal justice and global justice, it, it's also more beautiful, right? It also gives us more for how we struggle today, and I think it gives us more sustenance for how we move forward today. I would just add to that, when you think about the Birmingham campaign in 63, I mean, they obviously were taking on city government. Mm-hmm. You had George Wallace's government. They were taking on state government. Mm-hmm. And with, with J. Edgar Hoover, they, had a, they were also taking on a portion of the federal government. I mean, that's a major undertaking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the stories I tell in the book, right, is the story, and I was thinking about this last week um, when we had the national student walkout, that, that those students last week, you know, really stand on the shoulders of 15-year-old Barbara Johns. Uh, 15-year-old Barbara Johns lives in Prince Edward County, Virginia, and in 1951 um, decides, uh, persuades her classmates that they should go on strike because their black high school had nowhere near the facilities, the resources, as the white high school in town. Uh, and some of her friends had been working at the white high school, and they're, they're mad, right, went at these disparities. And so they go on strike, uh, this 1951, and they call the NAACP for help, um, and the NAACP sends two lawyers down initially to try to dissuade them. They think this is not going to go anywhere. They think the kids are going to get in trouble or hurt. They think this count, you know, this is, there's too much white resistance in this county, and the kids won't back down. High school students in Prince Edward County, Virginia, who, again, refuse similar to, to the way we're seeing this around gun violence, right? Refuse the, the politics of the day, refuse the limits of the day, and say, no, 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 we are, this is unacceptable. So absolutely, there's all of this, um, all of this tenacity, all of this um, imagining a different world, a different America, a different way of doing things that people... And people enact and move forward with, and I think seeing that, um, again, is just, it gives us a lot for today. Well, for as much as uh, we collectively may be guilty of of whitewashing the King legacy, I I also glean from this text, as well as your previous work, that you can make the argument, a strong argument, that it pales in comparison to how we have portrayed Rosa Parks. And Say more about that, if you would. Um, so Rosa Parks has been trapped on the bus, right? Rosa Parks is one of the most well-honored Americans of the 20th century, arguably one of the most well-known women of the 20th century. Yet how we honor her, how we imagine her, right? It's a one day. Um, she's, when she dies in 2005, she's constantly eulogized as quiet, as not angry, as accidental. The New York Times calls her the accidental matriarch of the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, the actual Rosa Parks, has this enormous political history. Um, Her activism starts two decades before her bus stand. Um, She actually gets started as an adult with the Scottsboro case. Um, She meets and falls in love with uh, politically active Barbara Raymond Parks, who is one of the local activists on the Scottsboro case. Scottsboro, again, is nine young African-American men, age 12 to 19, who get arrested for riding the rails for free. And then two white women are discovered in another train car, and that charge quickly changes to rape, and those young men are all convicted and all but the youngest sentenced to death. 
so a local movement grows in Alabama to try to protect and defend the Scottsboro Boys from execution. And one of the local activists is Raymond Parks. Um, and Rosa Parks had a kind of belief and feisty side of her all growing up. Um, but then she meets R Raymond, and she talks about how he's the first real activist I ever met. And so there begins her adult political life. Um, by the 1940s, she wants to be more active. She, she wants to register to vote. She's galled that black people are fighting in World War II like her brother is uh, and can't vote at home. Uh, so she goes to her first NAACP meeting in 1943, um, and she will spend the next dozen years uh, working to transform Montgomery's NAACP along with a small cadre of other sort of black activists, uh, including Edie Nixon, into a much more activist chapter. And part of what they're doing in those years are issues that we would call criminal justice issues, uh, two kinds of issues, right? Uh, the, they're working to get justice for black women uh, who've been raped, uh, and we heard about that with Oprah around the Recy Taylor case. Uh, there's a number of cases where they're trying to get justice under the law for black people uh, who have been victims of white brutality. And they're also trying uh, cases we might call legal lynching cases, cases where black men are wrongfully accused of crimes. So they're working on all these cases. And most of these cases go nowhere. Uh, most of these cases, they get no justice. So Rosa Parks is actually burning out. Uh, she's, her spirits are very low by the mid-50s. Um, and a friend and comrade, uh, a white woman by the name of Virginia Durr, who she's sewing for on the side, recommends that she go to Highlander Folk School the summer before she will make her bus stand. Now, Highlander Folk School is an adult organizer training school. It gets started in the 30s during the Great Depression. And the idea is to build local leadership around issues of social justice. And by the 1950s, they're turning their attention to civil rights issues. So that summer, August of 1955, Rosa Parks will go to a two-week workshop at Highlander around implementing desegregation. And she will be in community with 50 other people from across the country wanting to think through the implementation of desegregation, particularly in the wake of Brown, um, the Supreme Court decision, but also the Supreme Court's second decision in Brown, what scholars often call Brown II, which is the part where they say they're looking for this with all deliberate speed. Uh, and so people know that unless it's pushed for, the law won't actually, things won't actually change. So there's Rosa Parks sort of at this workshop, sort of helping to sort of think through how do you push for implementing desegregation. Um, then what she does on the bus. Rosa Parks may be a shy person. She's certainly a reserved person. That night on the bus, she's not quiet. Uh, when the police come to arrest her, um, and you can imagine the scene. They say, why didn't you get up? And she says, why do you push us around? I'm not quiet in that moment. Um, and she's arrested. Uh, and, and part of why the community galvanizes behind her is there's been an accumulation of these cases. She's not the first. And part of why the, the community galvanizes behind her is because they know she's brave. They know her. Um, they know she's not going to flinch under the pressure that's going to be brought to bear on someone um, which it does, right? Rosa Parks loses her job five weeks into the Montgomery bus boycott. Her husband loses his job. They never find steady work ever again in Montgomery. Uh, in fact, eight months after the boycott, they're forced to leave Montgomery. They move to Detroit. Uh, she will call Detroit the northern promised land that wasn't. And so she'll spend the next 40 years fighting the racism of the Jim Crow North. Uh, 
uh, in and alongside a growing black power movement. Uh, Rosa Parks will call Malcolm X her personal hero. Uh, she will do all of this work from welfare rights. She's an early opponent of the war in Vietnam. She works on many committees around political prisoners, Angela Davis, the Wilmington 10, Joanne Little. Right, so her, her, she is an activist. She is a lifelong activist across the 20th century. And yet we've turned her into this sort of accidental, um, meek um, person when that doesn't do justice at all, right, to, to her legacy, to what she stood for. To the end of her life in 2005, she insisted the movement wasn't over. There was much more work to be done. And yet we use her as this kind of symbol of progress to kind of put the, move, put, to put the problem in the past, when the actual Rosa Parks was clear that the problem is not in the past. So, yeah, I mean, I think as much as we've distorted King, the distortion of Rosa Parks is perhaps even more wide and egregious. <laughs> um, uh, juxtapose, if you would, how this revisionist civil rights history that, that, that you've um, clearly articulated uh, in your book impacts our contemporary appropriation of Black Lives Matter. So one of the kind of motivating reasons for my book um, was the ways, I mean, I'd been kind of fascinated with the kind of public memory of the civil rights movement and also with how it was being used um, both by the Obama administration itself and by Americans vis-a-vis -vis Obama, right? Again, this idea that, like, this was the apex, we were done, we were post-racial or almost post-racial. Obama himself would, would say in 2007 in a, in a historic speech at, um, in Selma, right, uh, we're 90% we're of the way there, right? So I had been fascinated by this uh, and disturbed, right, at the ways that it seemed to be um, kind of, again, putting the problem in the past. And then part of the motivation but the urgency, I think, for the book was then seeing how this fable was weaponized against Black Lives Matter. And so over and over, we saw people telling the young people of Black Lives Matter, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it like the civil rights movement, you don't, you know, you don't have the right kind of leaders, you don't have the right kind of goals, you don't, you're extreme, you're reckless. Um, and holding up the civil rights movement to chastise and correct Black Lives Matter and using language and criticisms that most of which had been used against the civil rights movement itself, most of which had been used against King himself. And so there seemed to be a particular urgency for us to kind of revisit and kind of look at the fable uh, because it was being used against contemporary movements in ways that seemed to have little notion of what King actually stood for what Parks actually stood for. Um, you may remember, in, uh, two years ago, uh, after the police killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, the protests all around the country, uh, then Mayor of Atlanta, Kasim Reed, is sort of celebrating Atlanta, it's the home of free speech, the home of Dr. King. Uh, but then, to explain the Im immense police presence, he says to reporters, you know, but Dr. King would never take a freeway. You're just like, what? <laughs> what do you think the Selma Montgomery March was? It's not in a cornfield. It's on a highway, right? This is all about disruption. What's the Montgomery bus boycott? It is a disruptive consumer boycott. It is meant to disrupt city and commercial life. Um, 
so this idea that the civil rights movement um, was not disruptive, the civil, that the civil rights movement was, you know, um, and that it seemed to me that it was this way of distancing and providing some cover for many of us, for many people who wanted to believe that they would be active in a movement if it was, you know, the respectable likes of King and Parks, but just this movement today, they weren't doing it the right way. And that seemed dangerous, and that seemed um, a distortion, right? Because, again, if we look back, right, what it takes by King, by Parks, by the whole host of people active in the civil rights movement is is having to, in many ways, deal with criticisms like you're being extreme, you're at political repression. And somehow we'd, we'd airbrush that out in this version that was then about using the civil rights movement against Black Lives Matter. You know, one of the interesting things you just said, it, uh, it caused me to, to ponder, you know, one of the criticisms is um, a leaderless movement. And, and, and that in and of itself is a distortion of the actual Martin Luther King because it was leaders at the grassroots level yep. that st- King, in my, I believe King did not start a major uh, civil rights movement. They were all started at the local level and invited King in. He even says that in his letter from Birmingham jail text. Yeah, right, right. I mean, and if we look at, I mean, absolutely, right, both, there's all sorts of kind of local leaders from Birmingham. If we look at Montgomery, right, where King gets his start, the Montgomery bus boycott is the product of uh, a women's group called the Women's Political Council. It's they who actually called for the boycott initially. It's a product of all of these longtime activists with the NAACP, like Edie Nixon, like Rosa Parks, like Johnny Carr, um, all of these people. And then certainly King plays a hugely important role in that. Uh, and um, and this is King at 26, right? Let's remember, King, when the Montgomery bus boycott starts, he's 26. He's so young. Um, but... Absolutely. This is a, this is, you know, how we're getting, you know, or Birmingham, right? Fred Shuttlesworth's been working in Birmingham for years. Part of how they come into Birmingham is Shuttlesworth's longtime work, that there's a, there's a local movement there. Um, Albany, Georgia. Snick, Snick was in Selma before King. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Fannie Lou Hamer, right? If we think about the work of voting rights and how we get to 65, right? You cannot not talk about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. You cannot not talk about the courageous work that SNCC and local activists are doing in Mississippi to sort of force the the country to see kind of this problem of the vote. Um, So in many ways, uh, Barbara Ransby, right, who's written on Ella Baker and, um, you know, talks about, a, uses the phrase, a leader-full movement, right? And I think then and now, right? I mean, that's what Ella Baker's calling for in the Civil Rights Movement. That's what we see in the Civil Rights Movement. And that's what we see today, right? This is not a leaderless movement. There are many leaders, right? There are, it is leader-full. Um, and, it, and, it, you know, and there are interesting ways that parts of Black Lives Matter are, um, you know, moving away from a kind of charismatic leader model, but parts of the civil rights movement did that as well, right? That's um, that's part of Ella Baker's vision, mm-hmm. Septima Clark's vision, right? Is that that people can lead themselves? So, um, yeah, this idea of a leaderless movement now, or even sort of this uncomplicated way we think about leadership in the civil rights movement, I think misses a whole host of leaders um, and how it worked. Uh, I'm going to read a passage uh, to you uh, from. Uh, 
Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. And I'd like for you to place these remarks, not only in your work, but in the 21st century context for us, if you would. First, we must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice. And then read the next like who who prefers. I can keep going. I can keep. I can keep going. Uh, uh, Who prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice? Who constantly says, "I agree with you in your goal, the goal you seek, but can't agree with your methods of direct action." Exactly. Beautiful. Right here we have King. This is like. He's in, a, he's in Birmingham, right? Birmingham is in this incredibly violent place, right? Uh, civil rights activists had, had renamed it Birmingham. Um, it's this incredibly violent place. And yet here is King saying, perhaps our biggest problem is not the Klan, is not the violence. It's the people who say, you know, I agree with you, but I do not agree with the way you're doing it. I, you know, who, who prefer order to justice. Right? I mean, so both, I think, we hear King talking to our present. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why we want to celebrate King in, this, in these distorted ways, because I think the, the celebration of King often is about not having us have to sort of hear what King is saying to us today. Um, and what King is saying to, going back to our, uh, what we were talking about a few minutes ago, about his critique of sort of northern liberals and many of his allies um, who who might be pushing for desegregation in the south but not in new york not in boston not in chicago um, who say i don't agree with these tactics of course i'm with you but i don't agree with these tactics so that's it's just my problem with the tactics um, and i think king what king is saying to us there um, and we can hear these echoes even earlier than then the letter from Birmingham jail, but it's so clearly articulated there. And letter from Birmingham jail um, is such an important document because it's King by himself, right? He's, he has all these days by himself. It's one of the purest texts of King we have, partly because he is by himself. Um, and he's, you know, and there he is saying, this is, this is perhaps our biggest stumbling block. Um, and that says a lot today about, and I think challenges us a lot today in terms of, um, I have a chapter in the book called The Redneckification of Racism, uh, and the ways that I think the way we picture racism is the Bull Connor, is the, the sheriff, is the people who spit, is the people who carry the tiki torches, and we miss, and that's certainly a very powerful manifestation of racism, but it's not the only thing, and it's certainly not the only thing that civil rights activists at the time are grappling with and and saying is their problem. And here we have King in the letter making that very, very clear. Professor Jean Theo Harris, author of A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History, thank you for joining us today on The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. That was Professor Jean Theo Harris. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.
Welcome back. And now for my closing remarks. The opening lyrics from Peter Frampton's 1970s hit, Do You Feel Like We Do, says, Woke up this morning with a wine glass in my hand. Whose wine? What wine? Where the hell did I dine? Frampton's sentiments could very well capture the mood of American democracy. We may be very well experiencing a democratic hangover. Regardless of one's political orthodoxy, what we're witnessing is not normal. In the past week, a former porn star briefly dominated the news cycle with her public kerfuffle with the President of the United States. The Secretary of State, reportedly unbeknownst to him, was fired via Twitter. The Deputy Director of the FBI was fired roughly 24 hours before he was to retire and receive his pension after 21 years of service. And then the next day, the President of the United States appeared to gloat of his firing on Twitter. And then we learned the presidential staff were required to sign non-disclosure agreements. No matter how one slices this, it is not normal. Or maybe it's a new normal. Maybe we have reached a juncture where the guidelines established in 1787 are no longer applicable. Maybe the 21st century demands that we create a new normal. If we accept this as the new normal, we cannot become critical when someone that we oppose follows the current president and behaves in a similar manner. It is easy to be in the moment and forget that politics is the ultimate cyclical enterprise. Perhaps it is time for the nation to collectively ask, are we currently on a path that leads to that more perfect union? The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. My weekly column can be found in the Sunday edition of the Winston-Salem Journal, as well as Politics NC. That's Politics, North Carolina. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Rally, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.